Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Baltimore, Maryland to discuss post-intensive care syndrome one year into the COVID pandemic. Good morning. I am Dr. Emily Brigham. I am Assistant Professor in Pulmonary and Critical Care at Johns Hopkins University. Hi, I'm Dr. Ann Parker, and I'm also an Assistant Professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, and along with Dr. Brigham, have co-founded and co-direct our Johns Hopkins Post-Acute COVID Team, or JH-PACT, clinic. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have uh, such great experts on our podcast with us. Um, and I'm going to start with you. Maybe you could uh, define for our audience what is post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS? So post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, refers to the constellation of impairments in mental health, cognition, and physical function that survivors of critical illness can experience. And, and these symptoms can persist for years after discharge from the ICU. And why is it so important to identify, to understand, and treat in patients who survive COVID-19? Based on international experiences early in the pandemic, we anticipated that at least a subset of patients with COVID-19 would require hospitalization, including in the intensive care unit. And we even knew that hospitalized patients who didn't necessarily require care in the ICU can also have a period of vulnerability post-discharge with impairments in similar domains to what we talk about when we think about post-intensive care syndrome. And so understanding the challenges that our patients face in recovery from critical illness really is an essential first step in improving outcomes. So Emily, uh, Anne gives, uh, the, tells us why it's important. Maybe you could give us the risk factors for developing uh, PICS because the PICS existed before COVID-19 came along. So there's a fair amount of data that precedes COVID-19. Sure. Um, so risk factors for PICS include, of course, exposure and time in the intensive care unit. And these include things like delirium, isolation, um, and, and really all, all the things that we come to think of as necessary for survival of acute illness. Um, and I think Emily gave a, a fantastic answer. I guess I would add that in terms of risk factors for developing um, impairments in mental health, cognition, physical function, we kind of touched on uh, how the duration of delirium is associated with subsequent cognitive impairment post-ICU. And so patients who are exposed to higher levels of sedation in the intensive care unit often are patients who are presenting, for example, with COVID-19 present with ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. And in that setting, they're exposed often to higher levels of sedation, which can predispose to a longer duration of delirium, which in and of itself is a risk factor for cognitive impairment post-ICU. When we think about things like anxiety and depression, patients pre-morbid are pre-existing psychiatric symptoms or having psychiatric symptoms in the hospital are also risk factors for development of anxiety or depression. And then when we think about PTSD symptoms, patients who have frightening memories or stressful memories of their ICU stay are at greater risk for developing PTSD symptoms post-ICU. And some of these memories can be things like seeing blood pouring down the walls, thinking that someone was out to get them, um, really seeing 
seeing dead animals in the room. These are very distressful memories that patients have and are very vivid to them. And so having these types of memories, uh, delusional memories during their ICU stay are a risk factor for subsequent PTSD symptoms. When we think about things like physical function, one of the modifiable risk factors for development of, of uh, ICU-acquired weakness and subsequent impairments in physical function are things like duration of bed rest. And so we'll touch on this in a bit, but this is why early rehabilitation in the intensive care unit is such a key component to improving outcomes for our patients. And what um, is the prevalence or incidence of uh, PICS uh, routinely pre-COVID, and what data have we had subsequently um, in the COVID era? We know from decades of research prior to COVID that about a third of our patients, for example, will have substantial symptoms of depression in the year following discharge from the ICU. Similarly, we know that about a third of patients will have substantial anxiety symptoms in the year following discharge from the intensive care unit. And over that year after discharge, about a quarter of our patients will have substantial symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And very often, these three sort of sets of symptoms can overlap. Also, we know that patients, even prior to COVID, patients who survived a stay in the ICU would be at risk for developing cognitive impairment. And so, for example, we know that many of our patients will have scores on cognitive testing that can be consistent with moderate traumatic brain injury or even mild Alzheimer's disease. And so cognitive impairment following critical illness is quite common and can also impact patients' recovery. We also know that the duration of delirium in the intensive care unit is a risk factor for subsequent cognitive impairments. And when we think about physical function, we also know that many of our patients will have weakness and impairments in strength and physical function that last long after their stay in the intensive care unit. And so we know that about half of our patients who were previously working and independent prior to the intensive care unit stay will not be working at a year after discharge from the ICU. So many of our patients pre-COVID were at risk for substantial impairments across each of these domains of mental health, cognition, and physical function that could impact their recovery and have a negative impact on their quality of life. Yeah, I think that's one of the critical aspects that really drew the world's attention to uh, PICS and COVID-19 because we could have a substantial proportion of the working population who were previously well and uh, were now likely not to work a, a year later. Emily, I want to ask you, what were the biggest challenges? Um, it's been a year since um, COVID-19 uh, came along and uh, affected the United States in such a big way. What were the biggest challenges at the beginning of the pandemic with regards to um, identifying, treating, managing uh, PICs in COVID survivors? So there were several, and I, I can touch on some of them um, sort of at a more systematic level. So the sheer volumes of patients that we were seeing that were requiring care and who had been through the intensive care syndrome were were incredible. And we, we anticipated this to some degree, just given the known effects of the virus and critical illness. But I think trying to create the bandwidth for that within our care systems was, was a very important uh, issue to address and to address early. Um, we had to find a way to create more space within our clinics and our ambulatory care systems among 
particularly among the domains um, that are described within PICS. And that meant really leveraging pre-existing resources, but freeing up additional resources to readily address uh, mental health, cognition, and physical function. And Dr. Parker and I are both on the pulmonary side, and we recognize that the acute effects of COVID-19 and certainly those, those effects that uh, we're driving those increased volumes in critical illness were largely pulmonary. So we very much anticipated that we were going to see high volumes of individuals recover, recovering from acute respiratory distress and, and requiring care in a pulmonary um, in a pulmonary capacity. And then the delivery of care was also a challenge. So those same groups of individuals uh, who were going to be needed in the ambulatory setting were also being pulled heavily on in inpatient settings, right? Pulmonologists, critical care providers were very much needed at the bedside. Rehabilitation providers very much needed at the bedside in the acute setting. So how could we find a way to make sure that those resources were also available in an ambulatory setting to help care for patients and, and to help optimize the recovery process once patients left the hospital. And then the delivery of this care in the setting of isolation needs, in the setting of a, a global pandemic where transportation opportunities were different, safety protocols were different, we reduced the volumes of patients that we could see in person in our clinics for safety, meant that we had to reconstruct the ways that we delivered care. And Telemedicine really truly was transformational in this respect, but was a huge lift to allow providers to adopt this new mode of care and this new mode of care delivery, but then also to have our patients adapt to the use of this new technology. And while this dropped a substantial uh, number of barriers for patients in, in many respects, we were able to provide care in a patient's home through the computer or through the phone. This also uh, was difficult for many populations who didn't have access to such technology. So we really needed to come up with flexible care models that allowed us to deliver care to all individuals who were recovering from critical illness. And I, I think a third theme here, too, is the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on underrepresented populations um, and really a, a fair number of populations that did not have access ready access to healthcare or as engagement with the healthcare system. Um, we noted a large proportion of non-English speaking patients who, who required care post an intensive care unit today. And we had to work very closely with social work, um, with those patients, with their families, with language translation in order to ensure health equity in those populations and then to try to improve outcomes across the board. Uh, yeah, Emily, you bring up really important uh, points. And let's dig a little bit deeper into that because Emily brought up the issue of the fact that providers were a limited resource, that there was a big technological boom, but that some patients weren't able to access it. And lastly, that uh, COVID-19 really exposed uh, the weaknesses in our health system, the fact that we have a disproportionately higher number of patients who um, uh, had a lot of poverty or who had previous health uh, inequalities. How would... Uh, how did you all address those issues, first of all, um, uh, at Johns Hopkins? Um, and how did you all ensure that uh, all patients received optimal care? Those are great questions. So I, I think Dr. Brigham touched on those a bit when she talked about making sure that we had access and availability of essential interpreter services. And so we worked very closely with our interpreter office to be sure that 
are patients who, for example, um, in our case, the most common uh, language that we were addressing were, was Spanish. And so we wanted to be sure that patients who were primarily Spanish speaking would have access to our clinic and we would be able to uh, have visits with them with an interpreter, whether it was over the phone or whether it was via telemedicine or now since we started in person um, to have access to interpreter services in that setting as well. And you know, with a surge in patients, uh, across the board on the inpatient side, on the inpatient side as well as in the outpatient setting, all of our services were were really working, you know, near or at capacity, and that includes interpreter services. But we were able to flex and accommodate um, and be sure that our patients were were able to have access to that essential part of their care. I think the other important thing that Dr. Brigham mentioned is access to social work and having a community health worker or social worker. Um, someone to help with access to care is absolutely essential for uh, these types of clinics in the post-acute setting, especially in the post-COVID or post-ICU setting. And in our case, in the United States, social workers are able to help patients with accessing resources for essential job services. Um, they can also help with providing support, not just for patients, but also for caregivers. Um, both in terms of uh, accessing financial support, but also in terms of providing access for mental health services and referrals. Um, and so there, there is a lot that the, the social workers um, and community health workers have to offer uh, to assist our patients and support them and their caregivers and families through that transition. Oh, definitely. And then in terms of the providers being a limited resource, uh, there were a lot of reports of uh, physician, nursing, uh, respiratory therapist burnout. How did you all manage to ensure that not only you providing care in the ICU setting as pulmonologists and critical care physicians, but also um, uh, taking care of patients in the PICS clinics and not experiencing burnout? So I think, I think there are a few aspects. I, I think for one, uh, we are... Uh, relatively fortunate here uh, at Johns Hopkins that we do have a large faculty, um, and so we were able to be supportive of the health system and the hospital, um, you know, within our division of pulmonary and critical care medicine because we are a large faculty. I think the the truth is that everyone stepped up and everyone contributed as much as they possibly could across the board on the inpatient setting and the outpatient setting, and that's not just true of of our Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, that's true across the board um, in, the, in the health system for folks who really um, went above and beyond to meet the needs of our patients and their families through a very difficult time. I, I can add to that too. I think Dr. Parker stated it beautifully. I think it, it took a lot of people stepping up and really tipping in um, to try to make something that worked for the patient populations. Um, what we did as a part of this is that we realized that that providers and healthcare professionals are also dealing with all of the complex aspects of the pandemic outside of work as well. Many of us have kids, spouses, um, are, are working to keep up other things in, in our lives. And so recognizing that that this increased investment of time at work and so forth was necessary, but that we had to have layers. We had to have some redundancy in the system so that that way when individuals needed to put 
their time into different buckets at different times, we had people that could step into that roles. And it's for that reason that Dr. Parker and I co-direct the pulmonary side so that we have that ability and that we have co-directors on the physical medicine and rehabilitation side. And what it's meant is that we can really work as a team and we have some flexibility as an individual to be able to step forward or step back as the other demands in our life come forward. And I think that has gone a long way in terms of maintaining uh, maintaining the structure for us. We're fortunate to be able to do that given the number of providers that are available um, here, but it has been something that's, that's really allowed for the endurance of our staff. Yes, that is so important. So, um, Anne, I want to talk about uh, interventions and therapies. Um, maybe you could discuss uh, with our audience, you know, which interventions and therapies have been proven to benefit those um, who have COVID-19 um, that required care in the ICU um, versus therapies that have been harmful? Absolutely. So, again, I think a lot of what we understand um, in terms of uh, longer term or more persistent outcomes really come from research prior to COVID because we're really still understanding what it is that our COVID survivors are experiencing six months, a year, or longer out from their acute illness. So from prior research for patients who have been in the intensive care unit, we know, again, that uh, exposure to high levels of sedation and duration, longer durations of delirium uh, are a risk factor for worse, worse impairments. And so um, we really try to focus on a sedation strategy of no sedation or light sedation whenever possible. And that actually means having our patients awake, alert, um, interacting with us even while they remain on life support, even while they remain on a breathing machine or a mechanical ventilator. And so that's one intervention that we know can improve outcomes. Now, obviously, some patients do absolutely require deeper levels of sedation, especially when presenting with severe acute respiratory distress syndrome or severe respiratory failure. And so that's always a balance. And if a patient requires deeper levels of sedation for their immediate needs in the ICU, then, then that's what we have to do. But whenever possible, we try to make the default to be for patients to actually be um, awake and uh, interactive as long as the patient is, is comfortable with that. And then the other thing that we know improves outcomes is early rehabilitation. And so this means engagement with physical therapy, occupational therapy, early on in the ICU stay, within the first 48 to 72 hours of admission to the ICU. So again, this is engaging in rehabilitation. This is engaging in mobility, um, even while patients remain on life support, even while they remain on the mechanical ventilator. Um, and, and it also includes rehabilitation across the continuum. So starting very early in the ICU stay and then continuing to engage with some of those key services of physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, and as needed services like rehabilitation psychology. Again, starting in the ICU, continuing while patients move to the ward and even into the outpatient setting. Definitely. And in terms of therapies or interventions that are harmful? So we know, again, that bed rest for prolonged periods of time, um, delaying therapy unnecessarily, so delaying engagement and rehabilitation, um, higher and prolonged levels of sedation, exposure to certain types of sedation. We think that exposures to, for example, continuous infusions of benzodiazepines, 
may uh, be a risk factor for development of PTSD symptoms post-ICU. So these are some of the things in the ICU that are potentially modifiable um, risk factors and uh, that we can address early on, even while the patient is still critically ill, to improve their outcomes in the outpatient setting. So uh, the Drs. Parker and Brigham, both of you, as mentioned before, are co-directors of your post-intensive care syndrome clinic. Maybe you could explain to us how you went about setting it up, um, what is the motivation for it, and uh, what challenges you met when setting it up, and how you addressed them. Oh, gosh, big question. <laughs> a lot. So we, when we conceived of this clinic, um, it was really a conception to take, take care of individuals who were recovering from COVID-19 of all disease severities. But we knew from the start, due to the research of Dr. Parker, as well as her colleagues, that individuals who were recovering from the intensive care unit and hospitalization for any illness were at risk for the things that are described under PICS. And so we knew that at least individuals who were, were coming through post-COVID-19 um, with those risk factors would require care. However, we also built in a pathway for individuals that might have persistent ongoing symptoms who never required hospitalization. And some of that was built on what we knew from other viral illnesses, such as MERS and SARS-CoV-1 and post-viral syndromes that could follow that. But we weren't sure to what degree that pathway was going to be utilized. We very much knew that in order to do this, we had to carve out a streamlined system for patients who were coming through and, and requiring care for the multidisciplinary needs that we've talked about and can be a part of the, the risks that, that occur post-ICU. So we needed to have a connection with our, our colleagues in physical medicine and rehabilitation, our colleagues who uh, address mental health and cognition. And so very early on, um, Dr. Parker, who already had connections with some of those groups, utilize those connections to sort of rally resources around it. And we have an equal partnership with our physical medicine and rehabilitation department who have been amazing partners in this to help care for this population. And so we set that structure in place, and we did it rapidly. Um, we conceived of this clinic in March, and we, we hit the ground running in April via telemedicine. And telemedicine dropped a lot of barriers for us to initiate uh, this, this clinic structure. We could have a multidisciplinary approach without having to um, set providers up in the same time and space because we were reaching patients in their home and could connect at the time of their convenience as well as the convenience of healthcare professionals. We also very quickly realized that due to the uh, multi-system involvement of COVID-19 on the inpatient setting, that we were very likely to see ramifications in multiple organ systems. And so we reached out early to providers across the institution in different subspecialties and asked for individuals who would be interested in providing care in a streamlined manner for patients who were recovering from COVID-19 who might need additional subspecialty care. And this included cardiology, neurology, hepatology, ear, nose, and throat physicians, um, as well as a number of other subspecialties. And we were just overwhelmed by the collegiality um, that emerged from our faculty and individuals who readily raised a hand and volunteered for these positions. And what it meant is that we could very rapidly coordinate care in a multidisciplinary fashion for patients who we were seeing um, in pulmonary as well as in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, and so it, it's 
really been so helpful to be able to readily identify providers at the time of our visits with patients and connect them with care. Oh, that's really impressive work and a major undertaking, and I'm glad that uh, you're able to hit the the road running. Um, Anne, maybe you could share some of the challenges that you had uh, in in that experience. Um, uh, For me, it's been telemedicine and uh, Zoom and and, and, uh, has been really phenomenal, but some patients just are unable to access it or uh, they're unable to uh, be familiar with the, uh, the technology. How did you address that challenge and what other challenges did you face? Well, that's such a great question, and I agree. I think um, in many ways, just as Dr. Brigham pointed out, telemedicine allowed us to overcome many of the hurdles that, for example, ICU follow-up clinics in certain areas have faced in the past. So, in, you know, prior to COVID, there have been many ICU follow-up cl- clinics, and at times, they tend to have a, a higher no-show rate, and that's probably partially due to patients recovering from intensive care having um, difficulty with mobility, difficulty getting to appointments. And so telemedicine really allowed us to overcome some of those barriers and engage patients who might not otherwise have been able to see us in person. So what that required was really pouring resources and, and staff and person hours into being sure to help our patients connect uh, via telemedicine. So we we spent a lot of time coming up with algorithms and protocols um, and training staff to be able to reach out to patients to help them troubleshoot to, to be able to access the various types of software that were available to them to engage um, and to come to their appointments virtually. And so it, it took a little bit of, um, you know, we had to learn along the way uh, but I think we, we've gotten quite good at it thus far. And as a result, we see that we, we really do have relatively low no-show rates. So most of our parent, most of our patients who are uh, scheduled for the clinic are able to, to join for their virtual visits. And so in, in some ways, a telemedicine or a virtual clinic can require at least as, as much staffing, if not more, than in-person clinics at times, depending on the needs of the population. And with a population that has functional impairments as well as impairments in cognition, um, obviously we need to be able to support them to, to join those appointments. We've also recently, over the past couple of months, been able to engage our patients in person as well. So we've adopted a hybrid model now that we've been able to um, move to in-person visits as well. And so we're able to offer our patients in-person visits as well as telemedicine visits depending on needs, uh, depending on their timing uh, from their acute illness and and taking into consideration all infection and and prevention control measures as well. Uh, And so the hybrid model really gives us the flexibility to meet our patients where they are. And, And to, you know, for some patients it is important from their perspective, or we need to see them in person um, in order to make certain assessments. So this really gives us the flexibility to be able to address patients' needs uh, in each of those aspects. And, and we've been able to partner with, as Dr. Brigham mentioned, um, our colleagues in physical medicine and rehabilitation who also join us for those in-person visits. And so we're able to have our patients see pulmonary and physiatry uh, when they're coming to see us in person so that we're reducing the burden on them in terms of number of trips back and forth to the clinic, for example. Um, I'll also point out another challenge that we faced early on is that 
many of our patients were coming to us either having never seen primary care or having seen primary care maybe, maybe many years ago. And so we were identifying patients who really needed to connect with our primary care partners, and we were able to reach out to some of the primary care providers here at Johns Hopkins, um, Dr. Zach Berger, Dr. Kathleen Page, to really think of ways that we could streamline um, and, and have those um, integrated pathways between primary care and our clinic so that we were not taking the place of primary care. And in fact, we were serving as a bridge to address patients' an acute or immediate needs and helping them to find access um, to primary care as well. And so that has been just absolutely essential. And I think in our case and in many cases, pulmonary um, tends to lead the way for some of these clinics because of our understanding of the acute and complex needs of the critically ill patient population. Um, but what I would say is that these clinics have a lot of flexibility and, and we're still working to understand which interventions and, and components are most essential for improving patient outcomes. And so partnering with primary care is very important. And in many cases, some of these clinics might actually have primary care embedded within them. Um, to help improve that communication even further. I, I want to add, I, I love the way that Dr. Parker said that. I think everything everything she said there just hits on, on all the critical points. I think you're getting the sense that the clinic that we've set up and the needs of clinics like this are, are fairly resource intensive. And I think that really it has to be seen as an investment, not just in the now, not just in the pandemic that we're currently facing, but in the health of our population overall. We recognize that we have an unfortunate opportunity, but an opportunity nonetheless through COVID-19 to make sure that we're not caring for patients just in the setting of recovery from their acute illness, but to have them longitudinally connected with care so that they receive resources where they may not have received them before. And because of that, we feel very strongly that what we are doing with our social workers, with our community health workers, in trying to establish insurance coverage, in trying to establish connection with primary care, that we are supporting their health above and beyond the pandemic and providing them this longitudinal connection. And so we have invested those resources in doing so. It means that investment upfront in doing that, both of time as well as in staff. Um, and I think in truth, the systems that we set up now are the systems that we will have in the future when we face other challenges such as this. So now is truly, we believe, the time to invest in structures like this. Yeah, sometimes it's unfortunate that we need a big catastrophe, a big disaster in order to have the interventions that were much needed prior. Um, but yeah, yeah so, so um, Emily, maybe you could dive into what future therapies are needed or what interventions are needed um, uh, uh, in terms of research, in terms of uh, understanding um, the PICS? That's a, that's a great question. And I know Dr. Parker is going to have a, a, a wealth of, of thoughts on this as well. I think going back to basics and even before we're thinking about future interventions and other things that we need, really making sure that we're using the knowledge that we have now um, and using those interventions that start while patients are in the hospital because we know recovery occurs on a continuum and, and truly starts before discharge occurs. 
we have to make sure that we're ensuring access to care and that the supportive care that we know is important for caring for patients with, with mental health concerns, cognitive concerns, um, with physical uh, function concerns as well is, is readily available while we are looking at ways to improve care within those domains as well. And so what that means is making sure that we are doing assessments for the things that are common within populations of recovering from critical illness and assessing for deficits in cognition and mental health. In terms of research, we're not sure yet whether there's anything unique about the recovery process of COVID-19 versus other critical illness. And I think that research remains to be done. And I know Dr. Parker is, is leading some research in that vein as well as others at our institution and really across the nation and across the world. Um, in the meantime, we have a, a tremendous chance to to understand how to improve recovery from critical illness in general by characterizing the manifestations that we are seeing um, and by making sure that we are systematically assessing patients as we see them in a manner that we are providing a quality of care across the continuum, but also so that we can learn from what we are observing within patients and improve the care of not only that individual patient, but a population as a whole. I think it remains to be seen whether there are any novel therapeutics um, that are beneficial for recovery post-COVID-19, whether those apply to recovery from other critical illnesses as well. The pace of discovery that we saw on the inpatient side was nothing short of incredible. And I think we have the need to rise to that pace of discovery in the ambulatory realm and are, are very grateful that uh, the NIH has put out a rapid um, a rapid call for, for studies to start to investigate this more fully. Truly, there's already a, a wealth of ongoing uh, research looking at not only therapeutics, but also truly in, in just describing what we're seeing and understanding where the patterns are and understanding where there are points of intervention within those patterns to be able to improve care. So I think you'll see a lot of rapid developments uh, moving forward, both applicable to PICS, but also applicable to care post-COVID-19 um, in general over the coming months to year. Oh, that was fantastic, and I, I couldn't have said it any better. Um, so I absolutely agree. I think where we are right now is, is really trying to understand what might be unique about COVID-19, what is very similar to what we're seeing um, in, among recovery from other critical illnesses. And, and we do know that many of the things that we're seeing, so impairments in physical function, fatigue, um, quote, brain fog or impairments in cognition, anxiety, depression or low mood, these things are very common to survivors of critical illness across the board. And so more to come, I think, in understanding the prevalence of these impairments and survivors of COVID-19, both those who required care in an ICU and those who were hospitalized and, and those who remained in the community for, throughout the continuum of their illness, understanding as well the risk factors and associations between such impairments. And so I, I think that's a, a, critical, a critical next step. And just as Dr. Brigham pointed out, I think this is an opportunity to further advance the field of critical illness recovery and understanding some of the mechanisms that underlie uh, these impairments that we see that can persist for months or years after discharge from the ICU. I also think we have a very unique opportunity in understanding which components of interventions post-discharge might improve outcomes. So there are a number of 
pre-existing ICU follow-up clinics that vary a lot in the interventions that are delivered and the outcomes that have been assessed. And so this is really an opportunity to standardize our approach to outcomes assessments to really dive in and understand which interventions and which components of, for example, ICU recovery clinics or interventions post-discharge might improve outcomes. And part of that is being sure to use a common core outcome set when we're assessing the impact of such interventions on outcomes. And so, for example, we are, as part of our clinic, when we use clinical assessments um, that are, are common across clinics so that we can identify patterns, um, identify patterns and impairments to be able to understand on a broader sense what our patients are experiencing and what some of the risk factors might be for those impairments. Yeah, we definitely need standardization so that we can ensure that there's a uniform improvement across the whole country. So, Drs. Parker and Brigham, you've been very generous with your time. You've shared a lot of insights about um, your work. Um, I do want to give you the opportunity to um, discuss anything that we haven't covered in the podcast as yet, um, as well as to make any uh, concluding uh, comments. Um, I'll start with Dr. Brigham, and then I'll let uh, Dr. Parker have the final word. Emily? Sure. So I, I think a, a key theme here is really that comprehensive and holistic care in both assessment as well as in therapies is, is a must for this, this population. And that's necessary not only to help individuals in the here and now, but also to understand what we're facing as a population. And this, this comprehensive care, this comprehensive assessment is, is just incredibly important so that we have the tools to, to fully address this and optimize recovery. With that comprehensive care comes the need to ensure equality of care across population. And the necessary resources um, for that are an imperative. Uh, just must be provided we have this opportunity to truly engage everyone uh, in the care and in the face of this, this common foe um, at this time. Also, I want to emphasize that survival alone does not equate to recovery. Um, we have made an incredible amount of advancement on the inpatient side in terms of survival with COVID-19, and it is it is we are seeing patients who are recovering from very high levels of critical illness. Um, we have to ensure that we have the tools to continue their recovery post their survival and continue the amazing work that has been done on the inpatient side to really optimize recovery for the health of our population as a whole. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and I think that, again, we are still understanding what recovery looks like in the long term for survivors of COVID-19, but we don't have to start from scratch. And we really can look to decades of research um, in the realm of post-intensive care syndrome to understand and be able to meet the immediate needs of our COVID-19 survivors right now. And so a lot of the symptoms that, that our patients are presenting with are complex multifactorial symptoms like fatigue and dyspnea, pain. And, and these are things that require really an investment in multidisciplinary care across the continuum of care. So starting in the ICU, continuing into the ward and into the outpatient setting. And so we know that we really need to be treating the patient, our patients as a whole. We need to be addressing each of these symptoms in a multidisciplinary way 
given the multifactorial presentation and contributions. And so we are still learning about what might be unique to COVID-19, but in the meantime, we can look to existing evidence to really understand how best to meet our patients' needs. And, and I really want to emphasize the need for multidisciplinary approaches to care across the continuum. Yeah, I think a, a multidisciplinary comprehensive approach, which you both uh, definitely have employed, uh, will go a long way. Um, thank you both for joining us and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights into what has been a very challenging year for most, um, but it definitely looks like there's hope on the horizon. You take care. A big thank you to Drs. Parker and Brigham, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.